the trenches. Hi, and welcome to From the Trenches. Today, we are joined by Robin Jacobson, Senior Tax Trainer at Tax Banter, FCA, FCPA, CTA, Tax Agent, Blogger, and Podcast Host of Tax Yak. Robin, welcome to the show. Thank you, Paul. It's great to be with you. Awesome. You, your history in uh, tax law and and training and keeping up with with it must be an absolute roller coaster. Uh, before we get into to how you keep up with with all of the uh, tax changes, tell the listeners just a little bit about yourself for those who who don't know you. Okay. Well, I guess for this story probably begins when I was fifteen years old. I walked into my first accounting class in year eleven. And my very long-haired, curly hair, thongs in the middle of winter, drum-playing, cross-country accounting teacher. Right. So quite a bit of an image there for everyone. He put up on the board, A equals L plus E. Yes. T-ledgers. I was sold. I don't know why, but it just clicked. (laughs) And I never enjoyed science. I was good at maths, and I fell into accounting pretty early on. So uh, went through the big firms. So I've got a public practice background and uh, worked in big four and five, six, whatever they were at the time, uh, and very second tier and super and business services and late 90s fell into tax. So in particular, I started doing some GST seminars. Um, I spent a number of years with Webb Martin in Melbourne and that's when I became a professional tax trainer. So I've now been training professionally for more than 21 years. And going on from that, I basically ran my own business for a number of years, uh, Syntax for six years, and I've been with Tax Banter now for seven years and, and still absolutely loving it. <laughs> loving. I love tax. I, I get an eye roll when people say I love, you know, helping clients navigate their tax. How do people go when saying you, do, you love reading legislation in case notes? It just, I don't know, fires me up. Now, don't get me wrong, Paul. Sitting there in the middle of an evening or a weekend where I'm having to work through cases, rulings, legislation, I can think of more enjoyable ways to spend the time. But it's all part of the bigger picture. And it allows me to do what I do, which is communicating really technical changes in a practical way. Um, So aside from the things you mentioned, I do a lot of advocacy work. So I'm involved with Treasury consultations and with the tax office, and I've been on the the single-touch payroll consultation, uh, in fact, with you for a number of years now. I speak to the media regularly, so I've had a number of articles published in the last 12 months, uh, in particular relating to some issues that I'm um, advocating for. And I'll also get involved in the committees. So I'm chair of the CPA Australia Victorian Public Practice Committee. I'm co-chair of the Tax Institute Women in Tax Committee, and I also sit on the Tax Institute Victorian Professional Development Committee as a number of other subcommittees falling under that. So I'm a busy lady. There's certainly a lot of, com- of committees. How do, you, how do you find and manage the time? Question without notice, sorry. Right. Um, and, and I often, I struggle with this as well, when you, when you commit to a lot of committees, <laughs> like you and I both, both do, certainly you more than me. You know, I find a lot of them are during work hours and, and I try to limit them to not being too travel related. So more it's about impact probably on the work rather than the family. But how do you, you kind of manage? Because you do a lot of travelling as well. Look, I'm travelling every couple of weeks, so yes, I am away a lot. Look, one of the advantages of the role and the work that I do at Tax Banter, it's very flexible. And by that I mean I have not worked a Monday to Friday nine to five job for 25 years. Uh, Our training sessions are all over the country. They're all times of the day. No day looks like any other day. No week looks like any other week. So when I've got meetings and consultations, and some of them are interstate, but most of them fortunately are in Melbourne where I'm based, 
It does allow me to just attend to those during the day around my training sessions. You, know, you dial in when you can, you have to give your apologies occasionally. <laughs> um, but yes, it does mean that some of the other work flows into the evenings and onto weekends, which not healthy, not ideal. But if I want to uh, take on these workloads and take on these commitments and give something back to the profession, which a lot of this work is about, then that's the sacrifice. Another question I just thought of, apologies again, um, was how has technology impacted training? Given you've been, you know, been around for 21 years and I suppose that you know, we didn't really have webinars and you know, I still remember getting a, one of my old firms, we used to get CDs in the mail, I think, which was on the couch, was a tax, anyway, I have flashbacks. Um, how has it changed? Like, how has the role of the trainer, you know, are you travelling less, doing far more online? You know, where's the future? Will we see a hologram of Robin presenting around, around Australia in the future? Paul, if you could find a way to clone me, I could have five of me, you know, four of me working, earning the money, getting out there, doing what I need to do, and then one or two of me could go on holiday. I mean, that sounds fantastic. <laughs> um, look, it's a great question. And if I think back to when I joined Webmartin back in 2000, and I'm thinking back to how we used to do things, we had virtually no notes were emailed. We provided hard copies. So we would load up the boots of our cars at the office with 20 sets of notes, update and special topics. So that's now 40 sets of notes. I remember if you like. those binders. I remember, I remember those. Each paper was, you know, 50, 100 pages, 50 pages double-sided. And we could have three sessions in a day and you might be not in the office for two or three days. So you could be loading up, you know, six or seven sets of notes. I mean, there were thousands and thousands of, of pages that we would load into our boot. And we'd be carting all this upstairs because accountants were always above <laughs> the, the street level. They're always up on one level. Today, everything's emailed. If I think back to the old days of the budget, we used to queue at the government bookshop in Queen Street for the budget papers to be released at 7.30 on the, the budget night. These days, within 10 minutes, it appears on the website, you download what you need. Home and your slippers. I'm, we're, all, we're all all the accounts, home and slippers. Refresh, Absolutely. refresh. Yeah, biggest night of the year for us. Yeah. If I think to the way that we communicate information, I can wake up on a, a weekday morning at, let's say, 6 or 7 in the morning. I'll check the news. I might look at the Fin Review or the ABC app on my phone, see that something's happened, open up a hyperlink that takes me into Safari or Google or whatever browser you're in, you find what you need, you then immediately share it on LinkedIn or Twitter, and within five minutes, you've become aware of some information, been able to share it, and then you get on with the rest of your day. What was the old process? Like, how, how did you follow cases before there seems like there was this 24-hour news cycle and... Are we talking pre-email or post? Because we've had since the mid-90s at least email. Yeah. So once a day, an email would turn up from your Thompsons or your CCHs, gotcha. and that would say, look, this has happened. But to actually get access to it was clumsy. It might not hit the website for a few days. Now it's also instant. Yeah. Huh. Has that impacted the demand for training? Like, because, and I suppose for, for me it was people who were, you know, the micro firms who don't necessarily have the money to spend on a, a single person attending, you know, a, a, getting a trainer one-on-one -on -one kind of thing. Do you find more people are getting the training, I guess, from those free sources rather than, rather than paying for it? Or? I think there's more choice than ever before. <laughs> You remember those conversations in the late 90s? The internet had been introduced to everyone as a concept. You know, we started to move from one single dial-up computer in the entire office where everybody suddenly had access. And then we moved into ADSL and, and of course, we're now with our, our NBN and, and full broadband, et cetera. If I think back to the way we used to communicate, we 
looked ahead and said, this is going to change our lives. We're not going to have travel anymore because everybody's now going to do it through the web. Now, yes, we offer webinars and that's now complementing our other product offerings. But I don't see any indication that it's slowing down from the face-to-face mm. -face sessions. There's something still incredibly powerful about the person sitting in front of you with the eye-to-eye -eye contact, the dynamics, the interaction, the ability to mm. ask questions and tailoring it to what you want. And you cannot replicate that through a webinar. We've got a number of firms that will dial in. So one office will have physically the session with us in the room. They'll have a, a, another office and that office will watch through a, um, some sort of Skyping or webinar or whatever. It's never the same. Mm. You don't get the interaction. You don't get the engagement. Is it better than doing nothing? Yes, but it'll never be as good as the face-to-face. -face. Yeah, no, and, and, I, and I think that's right. I think, you know, you always sort of half listen to a webinar. You know, I think for me I'm kind of distracted, get up and get a coffee or got another screen on, whereas I do remember from, from other firms I worked at, it's actually a nice team-building thing to get all in the room and it was at lunch or whatever and you'd, you know, have a mince and kind of challenge each other, answer questions. Anyway, it was good. I'd also add, what does this look like in the future? That's crystal ball gazing. But we've got to ask the question, does the model that suited the training environment for the last 20 years work into the future? When we've got the next generation of accountants who are far more cloud savvy, far more used to, you know, they're born with their thumbs on devices, mm. How does that look in terms of the old-fashioned traditional model of a trainer coming into the room and delivering a session? Now, it's going to be really interesting 20, 30, 40 years from now mm. as to what that looks like because I can tell you one thing, tax is not going away. And, and that leads us a perfect, perfect segue, Robin, a seasoned professional. Keeping up, keeping up with the tax changes, like it, for most accountants, for most practitioners out there, our heads uh, constantly uh, explode at, at the, the rapid rate of change, certainly getting harder, um, and and businesses, I suppose, getting into more sharing economy, and even individuals now got their you know their businesses and sharing economies and Airbnbs and all sorts of stuff. You know, I think not only is that their, their circumstances getting more complex with a lot of businesses exporting now that never did, but that just the, the the raft of changes. Someone as someone who spends a full time job trying to keep up with it, is it possible to keep on top of it, or is it a struggle even at a full time clip? Look, I'd love to give you the uh, the flippant answer and say I've got a little USB port in my side <laughs> and I just plug in my cable and it just downloads and while I'm sleeping I can fill up my mind <laughs> and the next day I go out and you train. You put the book under the pillow and just... <laughs> <laughs> um, unfortunately, it is still the old-fashioned way. I've got to sit there and read. I've got to do the hard slog. So, it's, you know, if someone says to me, how many hours did it take you to prepare for this session? It doesn't quite work like that. You're just constantly reading. And for a long time I've likened a trainer to a seasoned athlete. So think of your, your 100-metre sprinter. To be able to achieve that speed in that distance, they're on top of their game the whole time. Yeah. They have to keep on top of their training. They take a week or two or a month out. Um, the muscles are going to collapse and they're not going to be able to achieve their speeds. We're the same way. We take a week or two out of work, we go and leave. It's amazing how much happens in that week. And oh. we come back and we've got to get back up to speed again. So it's just constant. Do you, do you share it around the team? Like, do you do you split some of that knowledge or learn from each other, or are you reading every case yourself? 
every legislation yourself? We are generally across everything that comes across our desk, but absolutely we share knowledge. So if someone picks up a point that maybe others missed, we have weekly meetings and we get to share that with each other. Yep. We bring intel back from our clients to say, you know, the client raised this issue. So whatever questions are being asked out there now forms part of a broader forum. So we're tapping into everybody's access to the clients and that makes us better trainers. So we can then go out to the next client saying, are you aware of this issue? Because this was raised at a previous session. Yeah, no, it's crowdsourcing the, the, the questions, I suppose. Yeah. How do you, and one of the things that I think, and this, I learned very well with examples, and I know, you know, some of the, the interpretive decisions which we'll talk about later have some examples, but I always learn on a, I have a client, I have a situation, and I, I work the answer through. How do you understand and digest the what you're reading when you're not necessarily working it through a case? Like, I think I would find it very hard to go, well, how does this apply to John or Sally sitting at home? If, if I'm, I'm reading really, like, really dry, obviously cases are cases, but reading really dry legislation, go, oh, I just, you can't see the implementation until you implement it. Okay, I'll give you um, an example. Just this morning, I, I woke up quarter past five. I didn't need to wake up that early. It just happened. And I thought, well, I can lie here and think about everything that needs to get done, but I thought, no, I'll get up and get on with the day. There was a full federal court decision last week, the case of Harding, and this is a case we've been following for some time when it was appealed from the federal court. Harding is an Aussie who spent virtually every year since the age of 16 in 1981 overseas, bar three years. And despite him being overseas for this extensive period of time in the Middle East, his wife and kids were based here, Ooh. and the federal court found for a number of reasons he was a resident of Australia. Residency rules. Absolutely. Yeah. A clearly unhappy result for him because all his foreign earnings now become subject to Australian tax. He appealed the decision. That decision came out last week. So I was reading that this morning at 5.30, yep. as you do. Yeah. Now, you've got however many pages in the decision. You've got all the extracts of case law. You've got the factors they take into account, the background, legislative extracts. In that whole decision, there are just two sentences which I draw out of it. Now, he won on appeal. Right. So basically they said he did have a permanent place of abode overseas, so he is a non-resident. And they've distilled, or I've distilled maybe is the better way to express it, that whole decision boils down to the concept that a permanent place of abode doesn't need to be your dwelling, your house, your unit. It can actually entail a town or a city. And with that broader interpretation... Wow they've permitted him to have uh, passed that test, and yes, he is a non-resident. So coming back to your question, you've got a great big long case with a mm. whole lot of words in it, and it's all legal speak, and there's a lot of uh, non-practical information in there. But my job is to firstly read it, digest it, and say, okay, I understand what it says, but then as a trainer, I have to take that information and work out how it comes out. Mm. So step one is always getting it into my brain. Yeah. Step two is how does it come out my mouth? And as a trainer, and this is where my practical experience comes in, I, I, I've done the work papers, I've churned out the tax returns, I've rung the tax office call centres. And so I understand from a practitioner perspective what you need to know, what is relevant, what isn't. And so I can say, look, of that entire ruling, this is the most critical part. Or of this bill that's come out with three schedules in it, two of them are irrelevant to you, but this one's really important. So it's yeah. taking the technical and turning it into the practical. 
Yeah. And, and, and I suppose, and having read cases and kind of gone, I don't know what I'm reading. You know, you read the summary and you kind of, you know the result and you try, again, as a practitioner, you try to look for the reason why, but, but certainly without that background of re- reading so much. Can you talk a little bit about the structure of policy development? There are so many different areas where an agent can get information. There's, you know, obviously the legislation, there's a raft of ATO, tax determinations, tax ruling, interpretive decisions, cases. I guess just very briefly, what what are each of them and where do they fit in in the, you know, what should we be looking at? Look, great question. I would start with the basic concept of what our constitution does. We have essentially three arms of government. So at its very basic level, we have the legislature, that is the parliament, and the parliament creates statute or bills that become the legislation. Then we've got the judiciary, and that is the court system, and that is where taxpayers can appeal decisions made by the administrator being the third arm. So the tax office job is to apply the law, If you disagree with the way they've applied the law, then you go to the judiciary for a judicial clarification. So our three main sources of information are the bills that come out of Parliament, the cases and decisions through the courts and the tribunals, and thirdly, ATO guidance. Because under our self-assessment system, which we've had since 1992, the onus is back on the taxpayer to establish their position. And in order to allow us to do that, the ATO needs to provide guidance. And they do that through a mountain of information. So it's beyond the scope of today's discussion, but we have some rulings that are binding and some that are not. I think it might surprise people to know that the TR series and the TD series, so the tax rulings Mm. and the tax determinations, are binding on the Commissioner. Right. The old IT series is not. And where's IDs? Are there ATO, IDs as well? There are IDs, the ATO interpretive... I forgot about the old ITs, yes. The old ITs are not binding. Yeah. ATO IDs, interpretive decisions, they are not binding. It's guidance, but it's not binding. But then we've got other documents like law companion rulings. Now, these are binding on the Commissioner. It's a <laughs> wow. new class of ruling. Um, I shouldn't use the word class. People might confuse it with the class yeah, ruling, yeah. which is oh, different. Oh, and then we've yeah. got other class rulings, <laughs> product rulings. We've got but the law gonna... companion ruling, we've only had for a couple of years, and it's designed to accompany brand new law. So if you think about a normal ATO ruling, it's issued years after the law's been put in place, and it's based on interpretation, practical examples, problem areas, issues. Which I often, I mean, and I like that kind of, because it, it gives, for me, the practical it's sense great. of how they apply it. And that's yeah. what they're designed to do. Yeah. But increasingly, we found there was new law being created and a vacuum of ATO guidance until years later, they came along to do a ruling. So now with every major tax bill, they are now releasing a law companion ruling, either when the bill hits Parliament or as it's before Parliament or as it's enacted, pretty close to thereof. And that way we're getting ATO guidance, albeit without the benefit of hindsight. We've yep. got no practical implementation yet. No one's yet. tested it. No, no one's, one's tested it, yeah. correct. But it's our best indication of what the ATO thinks, and that's invaluable. And that's and so this is how they're going to yes. apply it effectively. Correct. Do they, does that have examples and have yeah, they tried to, they've tried to work through yes. if Sally presents with these symptoms or or whatever. Exactly right. Okay. Now, we've also got the situation where, let's say, down the track, uh, there might be a court case that proves the interpretation to be wrong, then clearly the ATO would just amend their ruling, uh, usually with a prospective application. We've got another one called the Practice Statement Law Administration, PSLAs. Yes. Now, practice statements are actually designed, and most people don't realise this, for the tax officers themselves. It's the commissioner telling the ATO staff how to apply the law. Huh. But they release them publicly so we know what, what they're, they're going to told. do. Yeah. So PSLA on when would they refer a fund to be non-complying? 
situations on when would they regard someone as not having an arguable position where there's been a deemed dividend under Div 7A, um, inadvertent error, those sorts of things. Then we get into our private binding rulings. Yep. Now, binding on the commissioner for that taxpayer. Yes. But I liken these to insurance policies. You go to an insurance company, you tell them your facts, you make these declarations, and you say, hand on heart, that's what it is. I'm telling you the truth. Mm. But if you then say, well, actually, it's not garage when you said it was, or you live in this postcode when you said it was another, they're not going to honour the policy. Yeah. So the ATO is going to do the same thing with a private binding ruling. If you don't implement the arrangement the way you said you would when you applied for the ruling, they're not going to honour it. And anyone else is hard to have. Uh, you know, there's there's re rarely ever two taxpayers who have exactly the same Correct. circumstances. So it's not like another taxpayer can go, well, you let Bob do it, let me do it, then you can find a small difference in, always in your circumstances. And no taxpayer can rely on another taxpayer's private binding ruling. What about what's an explanatory mem memorandum? Where does that fit in? Good question again. Now, terminology. When legislation, perhaps we should just um, backtrack uh, briefly, we have an announcement usually from a minister, sometimes the prime minister, but usually the treasurer. They'll say we're going to do something from a date. It's usually prospective at that point. Unfortunately, by the time it's enacted, it's usually <laughs> yeah, yeah. retrospective. The next stage in the process is a consultation or a discussion paper released by Treasury. Now, all of this is available, of course, on the web. Any of the draft legislation, which is the next stage in that process, and the discussion papers are on the Treasury website. So discussion paper then proceeds to draft legislation with explanatory material. Ah, gotcha. Okay? Which is what that's called. Yep. That's still at Treasury stage. Then, when the bill's formally introduced into usually the House of Representatives, it now becomes a bill with an explanatory memorandum. And then gotcha. that is what we use to understand what their meaning and thinking, intentions, policy setting, all of that. And then, of course, assuming it all gets through and that's a whole separate conversation about bills not getting through Parliament <laughs> as quickly as we'd like. It certainly is. Then it becomes an act and, of course, royal assent given by the Governor-General. So they all have their value and their purpose. But in terms of where should an agent focus, I think you're not going to sit there and read every ruling in case it might be relevant one day. It's knowing where to look for this stuff. So if an issue comes across your desk, you say, right, I remember there was a ruling about that or I don't know if there's a ruling but... Look, Google search is still one of the best ways. And <laughs> I'll is, share it? with you, as a trainer, I don't use the ATO website to search. Hmm. I could just do a Google search and I'll type in ATO so it narrows the search yeah. and then whatever I'm looking for. And you're just looking for a URL with ATO in it as opposed to a third-party provider. There's also law.gov.au? Law.ATO.gov.au. Thank you, yes. So this is essentially the legal database of the ATO. And I actually, I, that's sort of next to the website. That's where I'm also sort of next. But what are the top, like, if, if if you were to tick those boxes on that legal database, you know, where should microagents be if we can't be across everything, all of those? Um, Legislation? Yep. Rulings? Product, or, so not the private, the product or the... Well, it depends if you're after a product ruling, a class ruling, a, a general tax ruling. Yep. You can narrow your search or widen it. Um, look, another key website is Osley. So it's the Australian oh, yeah. Legal Information Institute, A-U-S-T-L-I-I yep. dot E-D-U dot A-U. Dot A-U. Yep. Yes, had to think about the end there. Um, huge amount of information, all free, very well set up now. And they've okay. got apps on devices too, so you can do searches through there. Okay. So Osley I use for legislation and bills and cases. Yep. So all my tribunal and court decisions that I'm looking for, I will go to Osley. 
they are available on the ATO legal database. I find also easy to use. Yeah, and, and often sometimes user experience trumps Absolutely. actual Everyone information. Everyone has their own preferences. As well. Surely part of your job has to be the, and I often uh, love getting a giggle over certain cases that come across and certain things that happen. Occasionally there's got to be a time where you go, oh, I'm going to read a case. Actually just go, this one I'm going to read for free because this is just, it, this is good. Have you got, give us a funny case that you've seen. All right, look, before I get into one that I will discuss with you, we've had the nonsense cases. The ones that tried to argue the Governor-General was apparently overseas in 1936 when the legislation was supposedly enacted, so therefore it's an invalid piece of legislation. The one that tried to argue that our gold dollar coin is substantially made of gold, and therefore because the price of it fluctuates, a bit like a postage stamp, it has a face value of a dollar, nice. but you can never actually work out what the value of the coin is, so therefore we can never at a point in time know what the value of the assessment is issued by the ATO. Um, oh, that's a good one. It goes without saying all these cases lost in handsome fashion. We covered, the, uh, in the last couple of weeks, we've covered uh, a human being saying that he revokes his right to being a human, therefore taxes don't, don't, <laughs> don't apply. We also had, uh, the, 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 I think a lot have tried to secede. They've tried to say that their property is a different country yes. and, and the taxes don't apply. But, but you've got uh, one for us. Look, I've got one case. Look, I've probably got to mention two that are critical because they were just um, such entertaining cases to talk about. First one is La Rosa. Now, background to La Rosa. He was a convicted heroin dealer. Nice. All right, so this is our starting point. Yeah. Now, this was a case where he had organised a drug deal. He had $200,000 cash buried in his backyard, as you do. The night before the, the day in question, he got his daughter and son-in-law to come and I don't know why you'd do this, but invite them out to the back of the garden and then they dug up the cash and counted it and said, yep, Dad, all ready to go. Then the night in question, he was going to pay off his supplier. He got knocked on the head, unconscious, and someone ran off with the cash. Now, amidst all of this, the ATO got involved because we already got these criminal proceedings going on with his uh, drug dealing activities. But the ATO came along and said, look, you're carrying on a drug dealing business. So we're going to assess you on the takings from your drug dealing business. Fair enough. And he said, well, if you're going to run that argument, I'm going to claim a tax deduction for the cost, the loss that I have incurred in carrying on this drug dealing business, i.e. the 200 grand that was stolen from me. The ATO said, you can't do that. And he said, find me a provision in the tax law that says I can't. Now, this Income was in expenses out. <laughs> a 2003 federal court decision where the court said, and I quote, the purpose of the Tax Act is to tax taxable income, not punish wrongdoing. There shouldn't be a higher burden of taxation imposed on those whose business activities are unlawful than those imposed in relation to lawful business activities. In other words, we punish criminal activity through the criminal law, not through the tax system. Yep. This case escalated to the High Court of Australia, where they agreed there was not a provision in the Tax Act that denied this. Now, I'll give you a few postscripts. There are probably three in this. One, he got his tax deduction. Seems fair. <laughs> Two... Outrage, moral outrage, that a drug dealer should get a, a taxpayer's expense, a $200,000 expense. Section 81. Section 81. All hail. Section 81. So this is a classic example of where a case has highlighted a deficiency in the law and the law was subsequently amended by the parliament. So today we have a new provision, it's section 2654, 
that denies a deduction for losses and outgoings to the extent that they're incurred in undertaking illegal activities. Right. So they will still assess you on your takings, but you can't get a deduction for the outgoing. Sheesh. Now, the third postscript to that story, he ended up, of course, serving time for his uh, drug offences. He uh, turned out to be a, a police informer. <laughs> and on his release from prison, he and his wife were found in a shallow grave in 2008 in WA. So I'm not sure bigger, what the moral fish to, bigger fish to fry than maybe get, losing his tax deduction there. Um, One look, more case I wanted to mention. Sorry, yeah. It would be remiss of me not to mention Gary Ogden. Now, these cases are, of course, fully documented, so I'm not sharing anything with um, you that's not in the public domain. This was a taxpayer who claimed a range of work related expenses that ended up being a fairly high proportion of his uh, employment income. Home office expenses, overtime meal expenses where he actually wasn't working overtime, he was driving to the ski fields with his family. Nice. We had client and staff amenities, even though clients didn't come to his uh, home where he claimed he was working. He's claiming sunscreen and sunglasses but didn't work outdoors. Uh, Cost isn't it a standard deduction, Robin? Sorry, that's a joke for anyone <laughs> listening. <laughs> joke noted. <laughs> cost of managing tax affairs included the cost of feeding his tax agent, which just oh, for the record is non-deductible. Any clients out there, give me a go. I'll, I'll take a sanger. <laughs> there was some stationary expenses for Dora the Explorer pencil cases and Very stickers. Now, it may we be don't judge. he had a fetish for Dora the Explorer. We don't judge. But we've got to assume that it was for his uh, school-aged yeah, daughter. Yeah. An outdoor patio setting had been described as a work table and the clincher was a $5,000 claim for secretarial assistance, which turned out to be paid to his seven-year-old son. Mm. Now, it goes without saying that these claims were, of course, disallowed and fairly hefty penalties imposed. But you look at these cases and you think, yeah, we're doing OK as a tax system if we're identifying these sorts of taxpayers. Yeah. Who's letting? Oh, who's letting that through? That's yeah. It's a, if that's, I think the agent's got a few questions on that. Uh, let's wrap up uh, on uh, hopefully a practical note. What What are your six top tips for micro firms to keep up with the the range of of changes in all of this? Uh, without spending a full-time job uh, stalking case notes. Okay, and I do acknowledge tax is but one part of what a practitioner needs to deal with in their practice. My life revolves around tax professionally, yep. um, but obviously in the, the real world for these practitioners, there's a lot else going on. So number one, keep up to date. You don't need to be an expert on everything. You need to have an awareness. You need to know if something's going on to go and check it out or know that it's in the pipeline at the moment. And that includes reading and looking at your daily emails and your newses and, and those sorts of things. Number two, use of social media. I'm not talking about seeing whether somebody ate something for breakfast or took their dog for a walk or followed a particular artist. I'm talking about useful productive information. There is so much available in particular on LinkedIn these days. Um, Twitter, of course, is another one. Facebook's really for the retail market, but LinkedIn is, is most certainly there for the professional market. And there's a, a wealth of information now being shared amongst professionals. So tap into that network and, and broaden your network. Number three, attend conferences. Now, we touched on conferences was that in our podcast? Or? Yeah, it doesn't matter. Does yeah, yeah, we've previously <laughs> covered it. <laughs> so with conferences, there is um, enormous opportunity. Tap into technical sessions, tap into your soft skills, build your networks, get to see how other people are doing it. You know, it's sometimes things can seem a lot better when you realise there are other people going through what you're going through. Mm. And if you're sitting there on a lone island, you might think the world is just caving in and it's all too much and it's overwhelming. Um, when you start to realise others are doing it and how they're coping, um, can be awfully valuable. And I think it's on the conferences thing, and it might just be the conferences I go to, I think that a lot of the conferences now are covering this 
advisory, sales, marketing, touchy feely. Let's get together and have a hug, kind of thing. And you know, but but certainly your experience in with CPA, they have a very strong public practice conference, heavy with technical. Yes, it is knowledge, and I know the IPA have quite a heavy technical knowledge session as well. So I think for, you know, for me, those conferences become important if they are good technical. Sessions. Every year we get close to 300 accountants down at the public practice conference in Lawn, and it's again being held this year, 23, 24 May. So, look, it's a wonderful opportunity. I did, I think, 15 conferences last year, and that is my favourite one. So mm. not to plug CPA. But some now are getting into this expo sales space rather than technical, is sort of would be my comment. All right, number four, get involved. So give something back to the profession. It's amazing. For whatever you give, you will get tenfold back. I'm talking committees. I'm talking discussion groups. I'm talking consultations. Um, in some way, talk to your professional bodies or talk to the tax office. They're always very, very welcome of practitioners that put up their hand to give them feedback. In fact, um, just to share with you, I've joined another consultation at the ATO <laughs> this year. It's called Shareable Content. So all the fact sheets that come out on things like the work-related expenses and foreign income and trying to communicate in plain English how these rules work, we're now reviewing these documents before they go out. So it's just an opportunity yeah. for practitioners to have some input. Number five, I'd say make sure you're a step ahead of your clients. It's not a good look when the client walks into your office and they say, oh, I saw this in the Fin Review this morning, and you say, oh, what are you talking about? Or they say, oh, I heard that on radio they were talking about some measure before Parliament and you have no idea what it is. You need to be a step ahead of your clients, not just for appearance sake, but so that you're in the best position to advise and guide them. And number six, I would say attend regular tax training <laughs> and, of course, Tax Banter has a, a full suite of offerings there. No, very well done. Very well done, Robin. Uh, you can find... Thank you so much, Robin, for joining us. That was a, a wonderful discussion. You can find Robin's podcast, Tax Yak, at taxbanter.com.au forward slash tax hyphen yak hyphen podcast. Apart from that, Robin, thank you so much. It's been my pleasure and it's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to an episode of From the Trenches. David and I love to hear from listeners, so you can reach out if you've got feedback or story ideas, get in touch. I can be reached on Twitter at Paul Meissner underscore or on LinkedIn, Paul Meissner. I'm on Twitter at David Boyar, B-O-Y-A-R, on LinkedIn, David Boyar. From the Trenches.